You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to this edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today's podcast will recap the 36th Annual Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine Pregnancy Meeting held in February 2016 in Atlanta, Georgia. The pregnancy meeting is the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine's annual scientific meeting and highlights recent advances and allows authors to share their most current research. We have assembled several of the editors of the American Journal of Perinatology to provide their perspectives on several important presentations from this year's scientific sessions. With me today are Dr. George Sadi, Dr. Methodius Tooley, and Dr. Sean Blackwell. My name is Bill Goodnight, and we represent the editorial board of the American Journal of Perinatology. I'll open the floor at this point for discussion about some of the more interesting abstracts and papers that were at this year's meeting. I think one striking aspect of this year's meeting that everybody agrees is that especially the predominance of the oral sessions today were very clinically relevant and give us a lot to think about as we take back to our respective institutions as to how we may implement some of these studies. I think one of the studies that best defines this is the ALP study for the antenatal late preterm steroids, a randomized trial to reduce neonatal respiratory morbidity. This was presented by Dr. Cynthia Giamfi Bannerman and was the first abstract presented at the oral and poster sessions. Um, I'd love to get comments from the editors as to how you think this study and the findings from this study may impact our clinical care. This is a turning point in the management of preterm birth, in my opinion. Before the study, we really stopped giving corticosteroids for lung maturity at 34 weeks, but we also know that almost twice as many babies are born between 34 and 37 weeks than babies born before 34 weeks. So in a sense, even though these babies may not have as bad of an outcome as before 34 weeks, but just by the sheer number of deliveries in that gestational age window, the impact of anything we do in that period is probably as big as what we do before 34 weeks. What the issue right now is who are the best candidates for receiving corticosteroids in the late preterm birth, and in my opinion, we have to follow whatever the eligibility criteria were for the study, so the same inclusion-exclusion criteria for the study would be where I would start implementing this intervention. Having said that, sometimes there is a little bit of disconnect between what a trial does, how you do a study in a controlled environment within a trial, and then even if you use the same eligibility criteria, how these eligibility criteria translate into actual practice. And maybe at some point we can discuss some cases or examples of cases that would be a little bit unusual. So in a trial, they may work one way. In clinical practice, actual practice, they may not work the same. I can say that at our institution, we've spent the time since the meeting trying to determine how we apply this to all the different types of patients that would show up on labor delivery, and I'd love to get patients' opinion or the rest of the editor's opinion. I think one of them that actually fits the study is the preterm rupture membranes at 35 weeks, where in the past we would just begin an induction. Based on the ALPS, the way that study was set up, that you would delay the induction for time to get the antenatal corticosteroids. Is that what most people's practice would be at this point? 
I think actually you bring up a great point that I think we need to clarify and need to discuss. The most important aspect of implementing this helps, I think, and again, I should say that we are also going to implement it. The most important aspect is that not to delay delivery. And before I go to the rupture membranes, we, there are other scenarios. For example, patients with preeclampsia that you're going to induce, they, we shouldn't be waiting on these patients to induce them. Or patients with other medical conditions, we shouldn't be waiting to induce on these patients. We should not be using tocolytics to delay delivery. The fear here or the concern is that people are going to take what we do before 34 weeks where we try to get 48 hours or we say there is some steroid benefit before 34 for weeks. That does not apply in this situation. The question here, are they candidates for steroids or not? If they are candidates, then you give them the steroids, but you continue the same management as you would have before this trial ever showed up. We should not be changing any management in these patients. So to go back to your question, should we wait to induce patients? No, we should not because the trial did not wait to induce these patients. One of the exclusion criteria for the trial was if you feel that the patient was going to deliver within 12 hours, if the pro provider felt the patient is going to deliver within 12 hours or you cannot wait 12 hours, then the patient is not eligible. So if you're in your clinical judgment, you think the patient is going to deliver within 12 hours or you need to deliver the patient within 12 hours, then they're not candidate for corticosteroid. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going to misinterpret this into saying that we need to delay delivery for 12 hours. That was not the case at all. There was one area where if they had ruptured membranes and they were 3 centimeters dilated or more or 75% effaced or more, then the question was can you wait on starting oxytocin for 12 hours. That was not a delay in the delivery, it was just waiting to start the oxytocin. But these patients were in labor already. They were contracting, they had to be contracting more than 6 contractions per hour and they had to be dilated or effaced. So it's not the patient who comes with rupture membrane, who's not contracting, whose cervix is closed. Uh, these patients, we should not wait on inducing them, but we can still give them corticosteroid. I think at our institution, we're also planning to incorporate the treatment part of ALPS into clinical practice. And as we try to discuss this with our providers, one of the things that I try to emphasize is that ALPS included patients where there was a commitment to delivery, not just the potential to delivery, but the eligibility requirement to get randomized and participate required a planned progress towards delivery for the most part. As we roll things out, as George mentioned, I'm worried about overtreatment that will just start being indiscriminate in overtreating people in the late preterm birth period, or that we will embark on a plan to delay or slow that commitment towards delivery. And in particular situations such as with preeclampsia, chorio or clinical or a rupture of membranes with the risk of chorionitis or placenta previs or placenta accretion. Is I'm worried that there will be the potential for harm if we extend this too much and don't do just what we were going to do anyway and then give the steroids on top of it. So that's the messaging that we're trying to give with how to take this study and put it into practice.
this method is uh, we also uh, have discussed this as a protocol to try and in, uh, incorporate this into clinical practice and we have had similar discussions as both of you have discussed so two areas I want to highlight and I'll be interested in hearing uh, everybody else's reaction and how you are handling those whether there are some candidates some patients who were not in the inclusion criteria but who could be potential candidates for steroids and the one we wrestled the most with were like multiple pregnancies and then fetuses with severe intrauterine growth restriction with critical dopplers and fetuses with congenital malformation. So all these, uh, except for the IUGR with critical dopplers, were excluded from the trial. And the debate that ensued was whether they were excluded from the trial because it wasn't thought that they would benefit from steroids or they were excluded so that the primary outcome would not be influenced by the underlying conditions. I'll tell you what we eventually decided. We decided that since they were not in the trial, patients belonging to those categories are ones that should be individualized. We're not dogmatic about that. I think a second area that we had a long debate about was the issue of the hypoglycemia that was noted to be higher in fetuses whose mothers received corticosteroids. And looking back at the literature, what we found out was that there's not as much in the literature about the prevalence of maternal hyperglycemia after steroids, even when it's before 34 weeks, and definitely a great variability in the monitoring and management of those patients. So at least in our practice, we saw this as an opportunity to collect information going forward, how to monitor for maternal hyperglycemia and find its relationship with neonatal hypoglycemia and then come up with what would be an optimal monitoring and management strategy. I'll tell this, George. I'll tell you, I talked to our neonatologist, and they test all these babies if they're born late preterm. So they're going to get the screen for hypoglycemia anyway. In the study, there were more cases of hypoglycemia, but there was no difference in the length of stay in the NICU that show harm from the hypoglycemia. I think as long as the neonatologists are testing these babies, are screening these babies, which I'm assuming most places they do if they deliver late preterm, then we're fine. It's not going to be the baby who's going to be born at term after several weeks later that's going to get the hypoglycemia. It's going to be the baby that's born within a few days after receiving the steroids. We're talking to our neonatologists as well. For babies that are delivered in the late preterm, it's standard practice to get blood glucose on those babies, which is great. So they'll be able to monitor those. The questions were, you know, about those babies that deliver outside the late preterm. And as you noted, our suspicion is that there's going to be a low rate of hypoglycemia, if any, in that group. I think the only addition that I would have from our institution, and it would echo something that Dr. Blackwell hinted at, was trying to avoid over-treatment with steroids. And to be a candidate for steroids in this 34 to 37-week category, I think it behooves us to very well select the people that you know they're going to deliver. And so we've already made the decision to deliver, not mm, she might be at risk for delivery or this is uh, growth restricted with stable dopplers that I'm probably going to deliver at 37, but she might deliver early. So I'll go ahead and give the steroids. I think our emphasis is to not consider these late steroids until we totally know that that person's going to deliver. The other side to that that we grappled with is 
should we repeat steroids in somebody that has already received them earlier in pregnancy and then rolls around with another indication for delivery in this late preterm? Because they were excluded from ALPS study, our institution, again, based on the potential concern for adverse effects from multiple repeated doses of steroids, we aren't offering steroids between 34 and 37 as a repeat course. So if they've already had it, we wouldn't repeat it in that course. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that. I agree with that, Bill, and I'm going to answer also Method's question about the twins and the other conditions that were not included in here. I would follow strictly the eligibility criteria for the trial, just because we do not want to have indication creep for this intervention. So the twins that Method mentioned, I would not use corticosteroids in yet until somebody does the trial in that and I would not use it in women who had received corticosteroids in the past, so that would be the exclusion criteria for the trial. I think if you are going to extend the eligibility criteria, it should be done under a controlled setting and measured. I do think that there will be, once ALPS is rolled out at practice uh, locations, there will be a risk-benefit discussion, even though it's not tested, looking at multiple gestations, women with pregestational diabetes, those with prior exposure or those with anomalies, or those that may deliver within 12 hours, because again, those folks wouldn't have necessarily been enrolled. If locations are going to do that, I think that needs to be done under a research setting in my mind. I think, Bill, you mentioned something about over-treatment, and I think the two concerns in implementation that I have here, we talked kind of about them on and off. Maybe we should just focus exactly on these two concerns in the next few minutes. One was the delaying delivery or trying to do like we do before 34 weeks where we try to get a steroid benefit. And we talked about this, that this should not be done. We're not here to do the same as what we do before 34 weeks. And the other concern is the over-treatment, as you mentioned. And one of the areas of over-treatment that I see could be a problem is the subjective interpretation of likelihood for delivery. So the trial inclusion criteria were basically women at high likelihood for preterm birth in the late preterm period, and specifically when it comes to premature contractions. Before 34 weeks, a lot of patients with just premature contractions, maybe not no cervical dilatation or no cervical change end up receiving corticosteroids. This is not the case in this situation. In this situation, the trial really had stricter criteria than just preterm contractions. So they had to be contracting regularly, they had to have uh, cervical dilatation, and they had to have either dilatation or cervical effacement. So they had to have six or more contractions per hour. Their cervix had to be more than three centimeters dilated or more than 75% to be effaced. So I can see one of the indication creeps here is that patients with just contractions, even six contractions per hour, but with a closed cervix or a one centimeter dilated cervix and a long cervix, end up being admitted, given steroids, but that's not what this should be. These patients were not eligible in the trial. When we're looking at these papers, one of the questions is clinical applicability, but where's the next study? I'd love to get people's opinions on it. I think one of the areas that I would be interested in figuring out who needs these and avoiding excessive steroids is, is, is one dose of beta in this group of patients equivalent to a complete course. 
you know, the optimal dose for corticosteroids for neonatal respiratory morbidity, you know, really hasn't been super well tested. In this group, how many just got one dose, and is there any impact on that, or secondary analysis may not be powered for that in this study. So we'll have to get opinions on that, and if anybody else has other ideas as to the next avenue of investigation in this subject. I was trying to look at how many got one dose, but I think I was going to say it's about 60%. In effect, you know, when you do trials like this, it's not a good idea to then do a subgroup analysis and then see if one dose is good, not good, then is it two doses, or then some people try to interpret this at gestational age, like if there is a subgroup analysis at 36 weeks and it's not statistically significant, then we should not use it at 36 weeks. That's not a good idea to do that. These sub group analyses are not appropriate to do. You can do interaction analyses between the gestational age and the number of doses and the outcome, and in this trial there was no interaction. You can safely say that you give the treatment, and if you end up getting one dose or two doses, that's based on the clinical situation, on the clinical management. I don't think you can extend it any further and say, oh, one dose works or does not work. Another avenue of study, though, that I think came up at the presentation at the meeting and, you know, in discussions as well, is following up these babies for medium to long-term outcomes. Because animal studies and some of the more basic science literature definitely suggest an effect of steroids, especially on neuronal migration and the like. And people are concerned whether, you know, especially in the late preterm period, when the risk of respiratory complications relatively less common than before 34 weeks, whether the risk-benefit ratio is different if there are any negative effects. I know the paper in the presentation cited the Aztec trial where there's some follow-up data and there seems to be no adverse events, but I think it's a great opportunity to follow up these babies for medium and long-term outcomes important to do long-term follow-up studies for all what we do in obstetrics, quite frankly. The problem is these are difficult studies to do, more costly, and so far in obstetrics, most of our decisions are based on short-term outcomes. Hopefully, in the rest of the podcast, we'll discuss another trial that went through the trouble of getting long-term outcome and how this impacts our management. But in the meantime, I think the concern I have is people are going to say, and I know that's not what you were trying to say, but people are going to say, oh, we shouldn't start using corticosteroids because we don't know the long-term outcome. We should wait till we have long-term outcome. I don't think that should be the position. We should say, yes, we'd love to have long-term outcome, but right now, to the best evidence we have, there is improvement in short-term outcome, and therefore, we should be implementing. That's a completely valid point. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.